are live. Um, let's go ahead and get started. Uh, hello and welcome to From Corbin to Sanders, our Zionist organizations targeting progressive politicians. And this is part two of that discussion. I'm Jamil and uh, I'll be opening this talk as well as assisting with the Q&A portion after the panel's discussion wraps up. Um, it looks like we've got a good turnout. Like I said, people are still uh, streaming in. Um, but uh, we're having a little bit of difficulty with live streaming this to Miko's Facebook page. Um, but we will eventually get that sorted out. Um, so if there are folks who didn't register ahead of time, you can let them know to head over to facebook.com slash Miko Pellet official. And they'll be able to watch the live stream from there. So this is uh, part two of a webinar series that is being hosted by author, speaker, and activist Miko Pellet. And uh, we're not shy about slinging books around here. So uh, do yourself a favor if you haven't already and pick up a copy of Miko's books. Um, he's got The General's Son and uh, his second book, Injustice, Story of the Holy Land Foundation Five. So in addition to having Miko leading the panel, we're really fortunate to have some of the best thinkers and reporters on this topic. And with that said, uh, I'd like to introduce you to them. So we have uh, first off uh, Anya Parampil, um, journalist at The Gray Zone. We've got S.D. Chandler, who is board chair at JVP Action and host at the Middle East on Focus radio show. And then lastly, we have Asa Winstanley, who is a journalist and associate editor at the Electronic Intifada. So today's discussion is centered around special interest pro-Israel groups and their targeting of progressive politicians and movements. You know, everything from the ongoing anti-Semitism smear campaign that was aimed at UK labor to US-based uh, political action committees that are working in collaboration with different party strategists to unseat progressives um, who support maybe even the, the most basic semblance of Palestinian rights. So with all of this reflection that is happening on both the Sanders campaign, but also reflecting on UK Labour's upset late last year, we want to bring the panel together to discuss and share reporting and analysis on the influence of special interest pro-Israel political groups, you know, as it relates to progressive political campaigns, other corresponding movements, and more specifically, those progressives who actually are advocating for some kind of Palestinian justice and freedom. Uh, so some quick housekeeping for this event before I hand things over to Miko. We're going to keep this event to under two hours with the first 60 to 80 minutes dedicated to the panel discussion. But we also want to make room for audience Q&A uh, after the panel discussion has wrapped up. So if you're on Zoom, you'll see a Q&A button on your Zoom window toolbar towards the bottom of your screen. So if you have a question you think of at any point in the event uh, that you want the panel to discuss, use that Q&A tool, um, ask your question, and our uh, event admin, Michael, he'll be collecting those throughout the event. And we'll try to get to as many as we can. If you're having any technical difficulties or want to comment about what is being discussed with the other people watching, there is an event chat room, which Michael will be monitoring and responding to, and we'll also be referencing links and reports that the, the panelists uh, talk about in there as well. Uh, I think that should do it for the housekeeping. I'm going to go ahead and pass it off to Miko Peleb to get the discussion started. Thank you, Jamil. Um, and thank you all for being a uh, Part of this panel and thank you all for everybody who is uh, participating. I see the number of participants is, grow participants is growing. And thanks Michael for the work behind the scenes. 
Um, the topic is Corbett to Sanders, um, part two of the discussion on whether or not pro-Israeli groups are working to influence elections um, and to get in the way of uh, progressive politicians, particularly progressive politicians who have a strong stance on the issue of Palestine from uh, succeeding. We just saw in the UK um, a, a candidate for prime minister who was really only a few thousands of votes away from becoming prime minister. And he's probably the most progressive on many issues, but particularly on Palestine, the most progressive um, candidate we've ever seen anyway, really in the West, on this issue of Palestine. The good news is he came very close. The bad news is that uh, eventually he was brought down or he failed and, and, and the, the, the accusations of anti-Semitism and, and so forth and supporting terrorism and all of this, uh, all of these sort of, uh, you know, laundry, a whole laundry list of accusations that were untrue uh, had a lot to do with that. And here in the U.S., we had also what is relative to the U.S., a very progressive candidate who was really very close to becoming Democratic nominee for president twice. Um, and uh, here he was calling, and this is a man who was calling to condition aid to Israel uh, with Israel's compliance with international law and criticized Israel for bombing and killing thousands of people in Gaza. We've never heard this sort of discourse in, in mainstream American politics before, and twice Bernie Sanders, who also happens to be Jewish, um, has uh, not succeeded, had to you know, throw in the towel. Some people may say too early, but nonetheless, uh, he did not become the candidate. Um, the questions that we're raising, the question that we raised last time and that we're raising again today are number one, what evidence do we have that this is actually true, that this, this, this um, claim that Zionist uh, organizations, pro-Israel organizations, be they evangelical or Jewish, uh, are behind this? The second question is, do we want to identify what tactics they're using and then the third question, um, how do we tackle this and how do we move forward to, you know, to, to, to oppose this, but also to move the agenda forward, the agenda of uh, particularly the agenda that deals with uh, Palestinian rights. Esti, um, Anya, Asa, all three of you have been writing a lot about things that are relevant to this issue. You've been involved. Uh, you've been comment uh, commentating on um, American politics and, and, and American policy decisions and what is influencing these decisions. Um, right now, you may have heard that uh, Gilad Erdan, who, was the, uh, who's, who still is but has been for a while, um, Israel's Minister of uh, Strategic Affairs, will now be Israel's ambassador to the, uh, to the U.S. and to the U.N., I believe. That's a two tough jobs, I don't know how one guy can do it, but the point is that I'm hearing that there is a great deal of credit given to him to what has happened to Corbyn and what is happening here in the United States. So now it's supposedly he's coming to the really the, the most important front on this, on the on Israel's um, fight, or Israel's war against the, the Palestine Solidarity Movement here in the United States. And um, whether or not this is true, this is something we need to, we definitely need to discuss. And Esti, I wanted to start with you. Is there any evidence? I mean, do you know, uh, or can you say if there's any evidence? Uh, first of all, there is such intervention of, of pro-Zionist groups in American politics, but also uh, Erdan and the Israeli Ministry of um, 
of strategic affairs actually having a hand in, in what is happening here? Uh, sure, uh, that has been ca the case for a long time, um, both in American politics and, of course, you know, on um, on campuses. I mean, uh, the there's plenty of evidence um, showing that you know Israel's government is involved in these things, from the suppression of the documentary film *The Lobby USA* um, by Israel directly, which documents. Israeli meddling in U.S. elections. Um, it documents Israeli government agents um, directing and guiding the establishment and work of uh, U.S.-based Israel Zionist uh, support groups. Uh, examples being uh, the uh, Israel on Campus Coalition, the Israel Project, um, who then collect information and report back to Israeli government agents. And um, I don't know that it was included in the film, but there's a newer organization called the uh, Democratic Majority for Israel, which uh, includes people who worked at the Israeli embassy and now likely, you know, freelance for the government. Um, the uh, other, um, you know, evidence is uh, in the reactions to the incompatibility of the progressive movement and Zionism, which uh, you know are easily shown on a T-shirt like the one I'm wearing, if you can see it, um, but also are very evident in Democratic Party politics, and um, you see that on every level from from national party politics, um, where you have uh, you know the thwarting of people's campaigns, even for, for party uh, uh, um, officers, like the, like the chair of the Democratic Party. You have, um, you have pro groups popping up, like progressive Zionists of California, which uh, even had to change their name because they started out calling themselves progressive Zionists of the California Democratic Party as if they were an officially sanctioned group. Um, and uh, they popped up about two years ago, um, almost definitely as a blowback to a progressive resolution that was passed in May of 2017, which was, um, became, ultimately became the policy of the California Democratic Party, which was far more progressive than anything seen before it. Uh, you know, it included language like the California Democratic Party favors a US policy that would work through the United Nations and other international bodies, as well as with Israel and the representatives of the Palestinian people for a just peace based on full equality and security for Israeli Jews and Palestinians alike, human rights and international law. It, it goes on, it quotes Bernie Sanders. It says that the California Democratic Party rejects any effort to restrict or discourage the open public discourse on issues surrounding Israel and Palestine, disavows conflation of criticism of a country's policies with hatred of its people, but also uh, opposes anti-Semitic and Islamophobic language brought into the, date, to the debate, and opposes any attempt to restrict or penalize those who exercise their right to express their views through nonviolent action, i.e. BDS, um, to affect 
change. And, um, you know, there was a, a massive freak out. I mean, the, the bottom line is that they, they saw that the party's base, that the Democratic voters um, were behind this because when this came forward, it was put on a, a, um, a slate called the a consent calendar where all the, all the items get put on it, get voted up or down. And then um, there's a chance to pull things off and yet they chose not to. Other issues on it got pulled for debate and for a floor vote and yet they decided not to pull it. And I'm sure that that was because there were, you know, hundreds of media there. And how would it look if all the media saw a vote getting taken and winning 70% to 30, which is likely what would have happened. So they quietly let it pass and not, you know, hope that it wouldn't get any attention. But, you know, th this kind of pushback and the, um, these people are being, you know, directed by people, you know, who work under Galat Erdan. Wow. Okay. Uh, that's a lot. Um, Anya, let me ask you, uh, you've been reporting about American politics, American foreign policy a lot from Venezuela all the way to Palestine and Gaza. Uh, from both places you've been and, and, and you've reported some, some uh, really sense of fantastic reporting. Um, and I, I've seen you reporting a lot about the, the powers behind or the powers that are moving the American, American policy, foreign policy a lot as well. Uh, what's your take on this first question regarding the evidence we have for um, the meddling of pro-Zionist groups in American politics, in American foreign policy? I just want to start by saying thank you to Nico for inviting all of us to participate in this and to Jamil for helping put this together and to all of our guests for, for joining us for this important discussion. I should probably also start by mentioning that our Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo, broke quarantine <laughs> today. And we haven't seen many international trips from either himself or the president throughout this COVID-19 pandemic, but he is in Jerusalem today meeting with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. I don't know if anybody else saw the ridiculous images of Secretary Pompeo arriving in in Jerusalem, but he actually had this mask on of U.S. red, white, and blue stripes and stars. It, it was quite quite the quite the image. So I hope that people can check that out. But he really represents the right wing evangelical forces in the United States that have inherited a really strong support for Israel as support for Israel among progressive Jews and younger people in the United States is waning. You can find a whole host of polls over the last several years which show that a growing number of American Jews, for example, oppose illegal Israeli settlements in the West Bank or that young Americans are starting to feel less comfortable with the, what they see correctly as this special relationship between Israel and the United States. And I actually feel as though Palestine as a cause and as an issue is on the ground, on the grassroots level, something that we're winning as, as a Palestine solidarity movement. I think even within uh, more 
mainstream liberal circles, it's acceptable to criticize Israel because thanks to Netanyahu, I would say, Prime Minister Netanyahu, the mask of Israeli apartheid has really been lifted. And that comes in the form of, for example, the National Citizenship Law, which is something that really many say set the stage for the annexation of the West Bank, a policy clearly that the Trump administration would like to help Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu further along, and really just making it clear that you can't support Israel as a Jewish state unless you are willing to support an apartheid state, one in which Palestinians don't have equal rights. And so the result of that, I think now, is exactly what we've we've led this discussion with, which is the recent appointment of Gilad, Gilad Erdan to serve at the United Nations and in Washington as the ambassador to the UN and the United States. From what I've gathered, this decision came because Netanyahu, he was struggling to form a coalition government and it looked as though some of his major opponents were going to actually pass a law in the Knesset and prevent him from, from serving another term because he's facing a corruption scandal, he's indicted, that's kind of all been affected by the outbreak of COVID-19. But in a way to get this coalition government formed, he agreed to let some of his major cabinet positions be held by opposition party leaders. And so one of the few appointments where he really wanted to make sure that he had a strong Likud figure backing him is apparently to the United Nations and the United States. This is the first time, I believe, since the 1950s that one singular Israeli official will be acting in both roles. And it really will be, I believe, the most important diplomatic role for any Israeli official, because at this point, for them to be sending Mr. Erdogan, the Minister of Strategic Affairs, some, I hope Miko or someone else can discuss how this ministry was actually created as an intelligence unit, as a unit for the Israeli intelligence services to spy on BDS activists, boycott divestmentation activists, and the Palestine Solidarity Movement worldwide as a whole, as he did a great job of explaining how it really was an intelligence gathering operation. People in the United States were sending information to Israeli officials and, and reporting back on campus movements. This was all documented in the lobby, the, the documentary, which I'm sure we'll be discussing plenty, the, the Al Jazeera documentary, which exposed the inner workings of the Israel lobby in the United States and the UK. Gilad Erdogan was running this operation, and now he's coming to the United States, and he will be working either under a second term of President Trump, or perhaps under a, a Biden, Joe Biden administration, which I don't think would be so different from Trump on Israel. But this is going to be a major goal. I think the, the heavy hitter Netanyahu's putting out in what could be his last term as prime minister, though, who knows, because he has a million lives, it seems. But, but this is the, the, the goal for them, is to, to win back the hearts and minds of the U.S. people, because it's really a battle they've lost over recent years, whether that's due to the Great March of Return, whether that's due to the series of bombing campaigns Netanyahu waged against Gaza, or just the fact that more and more under Netanyahu, Israel is lumped in with this group of 
strong men and kind of dis dislikes seemingly right-wing characters and that's that's part of the reason why I think there's this kind of a break with the with the US population between between progressive forces even some liberal forces remember even Pete Buttigieg and Amy Klobuchar opted not to go to APAC this year because it's kind of the way that they have to nod and, and try and gain progressive support. I think that's a good sign, but I think we should be very concerned by what could happen under, under Gilad Erdogan's term in the United States. Yeah, you're right. The uh, it's interesting. The uh, yeah, I, I don't remember when was the last time this these two very very important jobs of of ambassador to the United Nations, which is posted in New York, and ambassador to the U.S. Uh, was divided was united under one under one person. Oh, that's that's a lot of that's a lot of work. Um, and yes, the 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 Ministry of 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 um, of uh, strategic affairs. He was also the minister of of uh, homeland security, internal security, as well. There's probably a, 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 an overlap there. Um, they did uh, one of the Israeli TV channels did a, a major uh, program about the BDS, what they call the BDS. Um, they interviewed me as well. I was actually in Palestine in Jerusalem at the time. Uh, and one of the things they showed was like the Ministry of uh, Strategic Affairs and all the secret caches they have and the file cabinets that are, you know, secured and how everything is run exactly like this was, um, you know, the, the war room, the CIA war room, if you will, you know, kind of thing. Everything is done hush-hush. Nobody would tell them what's inside this room or that room. And they were all very, very proud that it was all run like some major intelligence uh, agency. Um, and, um, and like, yeah, this is, this is, this is very, very, um, I think it's a cause for concern for us, and it really shows that the shift has come now to the United States with the moving of this man uh, to come here and work here in, in, in both of these important positions. Um, Asa, you've uh, you've you've been uh, deeply involved or dragged maybe into the uh, into the issue of, uh, of of the fall of Jeremy Corbyn and the and, and the accusations of anti-Semitism in the Labour Party. Um, there's a great interview that you gave, I think it was to the gray zone, if I'm not mistaken, I think the link is up there, in which you yeah. discussed that. Uh, you mentioned in the UK, uh, in this leaked report, uh, that talks about what happened in the, in, uh, in the Labour Party and the fall of the Labour Party. Um, and, um, it, it's, 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 it's interesting. I, you know, I was in the UK for the last three, uh, Labour Party conferences. And at one point, I said something that resembles Estes T-shirt at some gathering. There was a panel of uh, about um, <laughs> there was a panel about uh, free speech on Israel. I think there was a group within the Labour Party of, of mostly Jewish uh, Jewish members, and they invited me to speak on a panel. And I listed, you know, um, many of those things that are listed on that T-shirt together including Zionism and that became a big deal you know comparing Zionism you know to all these other things which of course is not allowed um, so would you tell us a little bit about your your experience and also your thoughts in terms of the what evidence do we have that actually um, pro-Zionist groups and perhaps even the the embassy in London uh, was involved in uh, in Jeremy Corbyn's uh, political fall if you will 
Yeah, uh, well, thanks for having me on the panel, Miko. Um, I, yeah, I would like to talk a little bit about the Ministry of Strategic Affairs, and it is really uh, key to this whole thing, um, as the we've been talking about so far. Um, just to give a little bit of background for what the Ministry of Strategic Affairs is. I mean, it's a very kind of anodyne sound, sounding, um, you know, just it's a ministry. But um, I think Anya hit it exactly right to describe it as it's basically an intelligence agency. You know, it's a, it's a semi-covert um, sabotage agency run by the Israeli government. Um, and it operates around the world, you know, and it's, 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 that's really is the best way to describe it. So it, Origins, it was founded in 2006. Now, at first it was kind of um, a ministry for Avigdor Lieberman just to give him something to do as part of Netanyahu's coalition at the time, right? And for, in the early years, it was about Iran. It was about targeting Iran. It was about, um, uh, you know, basically ramping up Israel's international efforts against Iran to sabotage it and so forth. But in 2015, it was changed and it was reoriented towards the boycott, divestment and sanctions movement. It was a way to sabotage, uh, for Israel to work globally, primarily in the US and the UK and other Western countries to sabotage and attack the Palestine solidarity movement uh, and especially the BDS movement, Boycott, Divestment and Sanctions movement. Now, sabotage and attack is not my hyperbole. Those are the words used by the uh, Israeli planners. The Israeli think tank, um, the Reut Institute, which my colleague Ali Abu Munara talked about last week, um, a, 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 a decade ago was, was recommending that Israeli intelligence agencies, quote, sabotage and, and quote, attack the BDS movement um, and Palestine solidarity efforts around the world. And the Ministry of Strategic Affairs really is the result of those recommendations of what it's been doing. So it, from 2015 onwards, it got this new mandate uh, under Gilad Erdan, it's then new minister at the time. Um, and Gilad Erdan, as we've been talking about who's now moving to the US um, to be this sort of dual ambassador. I think this is highly, highly significant news. Um, so 2015 was the year that Gilad Erdogan got this new mandate. 2015 was also the year um, I, that there was a transition in Israeli ambassadors in London. So um, it went, it became Mark Regev. Mark Regev was sent to the UK as um, a new ambassador of London. So, uh, to London, the new Israeli ambassador to London. So Mark Regev, of course, is, is infamous to us as Palestine solidarity activists, as, um, you know, a, a propagandist for Benjamin Netanyahu. For years, he's been on our TV screens defending Israeli wars and massacres in, in various uh, guises in the most outrageous terms that really even outrage um, liberal TV commentators in the UK. Um, at least, and um, the, the, you know, for for that reason, I think we quite often saw Mark rightfully saw Mark Mark Regev as quite a right wing figure, um, and of course he is um, because um, you know, in terms of Israeli politics, there's there's no left really. So um, he, um, but really it, within the Zionist movement, he's considered to be a figure on the left. Actually, this is something we've missed about his background, and he was. 
it seems to me, was sent to London with the goal of um, disrupting and stopping uh, the left uh, and to try and uh, divide the left against itself and to try and re-infiltrate Zionism into the left and certainly into the Labour Party left. So in terms of the evidence, we, uh, as has been mentioned, we've seen it in the Al Jazeera undercover documentary. So the, 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 the key point is this, the Ministry of Strategic Affairs, which is essentially an intelligence agency, a sabotage agency for the Israeli government, works in close coordination, what they call coordination, with pro-Israel groups, with Zionist groups, Israel lobby groups, whatever you want to call them, um, they work in many of many of the Israeli Ministry of Strategic Affairs works in close coordination with many of these groups around the world um, in order to you know push its agenda, and it 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 does that, and we we've, we've seen in these undercover documentaries really direct evidence of that. And so, first of all, in the lobby with the first one which was about the UK. So it, it exposed the activities of the Israeli embassy in the UK and infiltrating political parties in, in the UK. The result of that was that Shai Massot um, was expelled from the UK. Um, you know, Boris Johnson, who was a foreign minister at the time, had to make this sort of apology, but it was kind of swept under the carpet. So um, Shai Massot was in my view, I mean, and I think there's very good evidence for this, and I've written about some of it in the past. Shai Massot um, was an agent for the uh, Ministry of Strategic Affairs. Um, and what he was doing was trying to influence the Labour Party. He was working with uh, pro-Israel groups within the Labour Party, with Israel lobby groups. He was trying to create new groups, you know, gra supposedly grassroots groups that were actually astroturned. Um, and so, and we know that the Israel lobby and the Ministry of Strategic Affairs are doing the same thing in the US. So in the lobby USA, the American follow-up um, by Al Jazeera's investigative unit, um, it showed many, many examples of this. So uh, one of the most striking ones was that um, we had, uh, as he's mentioned, the Israel on Campus Coalition, Jacob Bain, the executive director on the Israel on Campus Coalition, in that other cover footage, privately admitted that his group coordinates with the Israeli Ministry of Strategic Affairs. You know, um, and and he he said he stated that his researchers quote issue early warning alerts to our partners unquote, including Israeli ministries, including the Ministry of Strategic Affairs. So what that allows. Um, Israel to do is to use um, overseas groups to essentially spy on and sabotage uh, and um, subvert uh, democratic proceeds in uh, the US, the UK and other countries in order to, to promote its agenda. The most insidious part of this is that some of these groups then describe themselves as Jewish community organizations. So the, 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 this is the most insidious part of it because what, what the Israel lobby is trying to say is that, oh, well, we represent all Jews. So in a way, that is anti-Semitic. They're actually encouraging anti-Semitism, you know, uh, a, a form of racism that we all oppose and stand against as we do all, race, all racism because we're an anti-racist movement. Um, but the Israel lobby de deliberately tries to muddy the waters. And this was a big part of what led to the downfall of um, Jeremy Corbyn. Yeah, the use of Jewish um, or Jewish community, whatever 
and then sometimes these groups are very small. Sometimes it's just a handful, a handful of people, uh, but they're always representing the Jewish community somehow. Um, and you see this everywhere. You're right. This is happening in many countries. I, uh, again, just a little anecdote. I was in uh, Italy last year in Milan, and um, the lecture I was supposed to give at the university there fell on a Jewish holiday. And suddenly the university was informed by the Jewish community, which turns out to be a small Zionist group, that this was offensive and therefore they had to cancel the event. Um, thankfully, this was Italy and the students just decided to uh, occupy the campus and, and, and the lecture went through, which was great. Um, but it's always the Jewish community somehow, which of course means that if you oppose it or if you do anything to offend it, then you're anti-Semitic. So let's, um, let's move on to the second question. Um, what tactics, we, we really covered, I think, the, the, the evidence uh, well. What tactics are being employed? Esti, what, 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 what can you point to to show what, what kind of tactics they're using um, on all, all levels? Because we know that they, we know that they intervene even, even when it comes to city council elections and mayoral elections and so forth. So what, what tactics um, do we see that are being employed? Well, you know, they use carrots and sticks. Um, and they're very smart uh, about appealing, you know, to people on issues that they are meaningful. They, you know, appeal to Jews by tapping into their fears about anti-Semitism and the Holocaust. And they appeal to white Christians through their guilt over the Holocaust. And, uh, and they appeal to lawmakers by appealing to their nationalist and expansionist and imperialist tendencies. They offer um, free trips. Um, not only to politicians and staffers, but also to college and university student office holders and, and artists and influencers. Um, they, they, they do this all the way down, as you said, um, to city level, state level, city level. They, they, they do this for people in school board. I mean, school board elections is like where politicians start off and it starts there. In fact, the, uh, the chair of the California Democratic um, Jewish Caucus. California is the only state that has, um, our legislature has a Jewish caucus and it's led by a guy who uh, started his professional uh, political career as a, um, on the school board, Santa Monica City um, School Board. Um, they, they use um, promotions uh, through false information campaigns like, you know, pink washing, trying to paint Israel as this gay friendly, you know, paradise, you know, they miss out saying except or if you're Palestinian and gay. Um, they do greenwashing to make themselves seem like they're, you know, this very environmentally aware um, state. They use uh, campaigns targeting uh, brown and black progressive leaders in a very racist way, like Angela Davis and Mark Lamont Hill, uh, Michelle Alexander and Linda Sarsour have all been, you know, uh, pursued, targeted, demonized. Mark Lamont Hill lost a job very quickly. Um, as I said, they thwarted the, the um, campaign of Keith Ellison, who was the overwhelming favorite of party members to become the chairman of the, Calif of the um, National Democratic Party at the demand of the party, one of the party's top donors, Haim Saban, um, who didn't want a Muslim who was, you know, sympathetic to Palestinians running the party, said he would, you know, withhold his campaign donations. 
Um, they, you know, the big thing is conflation campaigns that aim to change the definitions of words like we've been discussing, you know, conflating anti-Semitism um, and changing the, the, literally changing the definition of the word to include uh, criticism of Israel. Intersectionality is one that they're going crazy over right now because their argument is anti-Zionism is the new anti-Semitism. So in order to make that legally binding so they can really go after people with teeth, they need to redefine anti-Semitism to include criticism of Israel. Likewise, in order to make intersectional organizing uh, sound sinister, they have to change the definition of intersectional. Um, they, uh, you know, this is, this is what they do. They're, they're terribly threatened by intersectional organizing. And so, you know, they, they say things like, uh, interse there's a, a, actually an article on the cover story of the LA Jewish Journal titled, How Intersectionality Became a Sinister Threat to American Jewry. And it goes on and it, you know, tries to tell American Jews, Los Angeles Jews, how to think about this, you know, as, um, you know, be a result of the flare up from the women's marches where you had leaders like Linda Sarsour there. You, you, the first women's march had a Zionist rabbi speaking and yet, you know, they couldn't handle that Linda Sarsour was there. So they had to start attacking um, intersectionalism and, and redefining it in a way to make it, you know, anti-Semitic with lots of subtext and innuendo. And even last year, the, uh, Reut, uh, the um, Israeli organization put out a report titled, How Intersectionality Poses a Threat to the Organized American Jewish Community. And um, the third, I think, uh, you know, great conflation is that the uh, greatest uh, anti-Semitic threat in America is not from the left, I mean, sorry, is from the left and not the right. And um, the Reut report, you know, goes into this saying, you know, how uh, the, um, the head of Reut, that he was more concerned about anti-Semitism on the political left than he was with anti-Semitism on the political right saying outrageous things like on the right, it's much more of about a challenge of physical insecurity, like what happened in Pittsburgh. But anti-Semitism on the left is more threatening in the sense that it is polarizing the Jewish community and drives a wedge between Jewish communal organizations and many young Jews, and as a result loses its vitality, which kind of brings you us full circle to the beginning days of APAC which was originally formed um, to uh, interpret and explain to the American people things that the Israeli government was doing that they knew might not be okay to the American public and even American Jewry. Yeah, you, you mentioned the definition of, uh, of um the new definition of anti-Semitism, there's this, uh, what's called the IHRA definition. And the IHRA stands for the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance. And their new definition of anti-Semitism is something that has been pushed and accepted by governments and non-governmental agencies, political parties. I remember in the UK, there was quite an issue whether the UK Labour Party was gonna accept it or not. 
uh, here at the University of California, there was a debate and so on. So this is something that's suddenly, oh, why does anybody need to change the definition of anti-Semitism? What was wrong was just racism targeting Jews. Uh, and of course, the problem was that it's not enough because it's not about Jews, it's about Israel. It's not about Judaism, it's about Zionism. And the conflation that you talked about, of course, the biggest conflation is conflating anti-Semitism with anti-Zionism um, because they obviously want to hide the fact that you know, anti-Semitism is racism, anti-Zionism is a fight against racism because Zionism is inherently a racist ideology and, and of course they fear that. Um, and another term that they now uh, say is uh, sinister is the word justice. If you speak about justice, then that is now uh, some kind of code word for anti-Semitism because justice for Palestinians means, you know, killing all, all, all Jews or getting rid of, 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 uh, of all the Jews in Israel and, and, and that sort of thing. And that's kind of been their, their, um, uh, their debate. And it's interesting, I, um, about a year ago, sometime last year, I noticed, I, I, I learned about this program that uh, Israeli high school kids need to take before they go overseas on kind of student exchange uh, programs. And so I signed up to take this program. It's an online program. And they've got all these, you know, well-known figures, important figures, government ministers, and, you know, things like that, discussing and explaining to kids all of these different issues. And one of the definitions they discuss, or one of the issues they discuss is what is BDS? And this goes to what you said, Esti, about <laughs> the problem with intersectionality, but, but the, you know, the, the other side of the coin, because they said that BDS, they call it a red-green alliance. It's an alliance between extreme right-wing jihadist Muslim groups and radical extreme anarchist communist left groups that have come together, created an alliance in order to kill Jews, an anti-Semitic alliance. And that's really all they understand. That's all they explain about BDS. That for them is BDS. So that's, you know, these are all very interesting things. Um, Anya, I want to go back to you. Uh, you said earlier that it seems that on the grassroots level we are winning. There is progress, yet we are seeing um, we are seeing all these other things that all three of you discussed. Um, and we're talking now about uh, what tactics are being uh, employed. So, what tactics are being employed? What, 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 what do you see? Labeling is key. I I believe Asa will have plenty to say about the way the anti-Semitism campaign in the UK was used to sabotage Corbyn. And I have no doubt that if Bernie Sanders, Senator Sanders, had been a more viable and serious opposition challenger to Joe Biden, if he'd survived more of the primary fight, essentially if the invisible hand of Barack Obama hadn't appeared behind the scenes and set the stage for Joe Biden to win the nomination, that this same campaign would have been spun against him and that he would have been questioned about his more progressive surrogates such as Ilhan Omar for her comments uh, about the, the Israel lobby and really only because he didn't get as far as I think many of us would have liked to see. We, we didn't see that, that campaign roll out here in the same way. But other tactics employed by these interests include the surveillance and the intimidation that we already discussed when we, we brought up Gilad Erdan and the fact he's coming to the United States. This strategic affairs ministry and the, the surveillance of 
activists, U.S. activists in the United States. I think the greatest example of intimidation is the Canary Mission, the website which was essentially a hit list of college students, kids basically, who come to campus and are passionate about justice, as you say, Miko, and decide to get involved with Palestinian solidarity. And then the next thing they know, their picture and their biography and their personal information is on this site. It's really terrifying. I can't tell you how many younger students I, I met who talk about how weirded out and really scared they were when that first happened to them. A lot of them now wear it as a badge of honor, having been targeted by, by the Israel lobby like that. But that was, we of course don't know which organizations are coordinating necessarily with the Israeli intelligence agencies, but we know that Israeli, the, the, the Israeli intelligence agencies are running these types of campaigns on U.S. soil, and we don't even know how to keep track of, of the individuals participating in them. I mean, it's outrageous, especially as someone who worked for RT, and my, my employer was actually forced to register as a foreign agent, as, a, as, a, as an organization representing the interests of the Russian government, even though the BBC and Al Jazeera were never supposed, or never forced to do such as, as journalistic organizations, but neither are any of these people who are reporting directly to, to Israeli intelligence about the activities of U.S. students. Nobody at APAC is forced to register as a foreign agent. That is just really bizarre to me. But the final thing, the final point that I want to touch on, since we're talking about the way Zionist interests have really hurt progressive organizing and, and, and solidarity in the United States, it's a good opportunity to discuss something that I think for a long time was a, a touchy issue on, on the left, I know especially in the United States, but it is really something significant that had an impact on anti-war organizing here, and that was the conflict in Syria. And I saw the damage that the debate over U.S. involvement in Syria and the, the war on Syria the damage that it really did to Palestinian solidarity organizing specifically. I have spoken with students all across the United States who come from Students for Justice in Palestine organizations from, from a whole host of universities, and they'll tell you how, for some reason, this issue really brought out a shift and, and a divide in, in solidarity organizing. And I witnessed it firsthand when for example, my, my husband now and my, my partner at the time, Max Blumenthal, released a report at the Gray Zone talking about the White Helmets, this U.S.-backed organization that was getting constant coverage in mainstream media to drum up support for more intervention in Syria. And as a result of his reporting and positions that he and uh, Rania Kalik, another friend of mine, Ali Abunima, another giant in Palestine solidarity organizing, there are actually calls within Palestine solidarity to boycott the three of them, to not allow them to speak on campus because of the position they took on Syria. And they even successfully shut down some of Rania's events on college campuses, exactly in the way Zionist organizations do. These groups who of students and, and activists who were in favor of continued U.S. intervention in Syria ran the same kind of intimidation and censorship campaigns. And I, I it didn't really make sense to me as someone who came from years of, of anti-war organizing, someone who I participated in the Iraq war demonstrations. It 
was a clear line to me to oppose the U.S. war on Syria, U.S. support, Israeli support, Gulf support for uh, armed groups in Syria. And I only think that those of us who stood up against those, those, uh, those positions of our government have been vindicated, especially on the Israel issue, because what happened to the white helmets in the end? Israel evacuated them out of Syria. And while the United States did not achieve its ultimate objective in Syria, which was regime change in Damascus, there was a significant outcome of the Syrian conflict. And it's very simple, Trump heights in the Golan Heights, the United States would have never <laughs> been able to take that step of recognizing the Golan Heights as part of Israel, if not for the war that the US and its allies had waged on the Syrian military for years. That was a direct outcome of, of the US war on Syria. And a lot of people in Palestine solidarity were actually on Israel's side in that. And that had a very damaging effect on the anti-war movement. Even major anti-war organizations, I don't want to get into the details because many of them have come together and gotten over this, were afraid to work with each other over the inner workings of this, this Syria conflict. And so it was really damaging, but I think now we've moved out of it and kind of seen where people fall. And that's why I think it's important to talk about it right now. But we should just be very clear that Israel benefited very, very much uh, from that war and that it, it did a lot of damage also to Palestinian solidarity. So let me, let me follow up on that for a second, Anya. I remember when the war, the, the, the war in Syria just began, I gave a talk, I forget what city I was in, but at a, at a big mosque. And when I came, um, the organizer apologized that half the mosque wasn't coming to my talk because even though they agree on the Palestine issue, there's a rift between him as the organizer and the others because of Syria. And that was the first time I heard that there was this rift on the, in, the, in, the, in the pro-Palestine camp, the Palestine Solidarity Camp, because of Syria. And of course, like, like you described, it has grown to some really, really, really outrageous proportions. But do you tie that back to somehow intervention by Zionist groups? I do believe that the... the tactics that these Zionist groups used against Palestine solidarity were then turned against, people turned it against themselves in Palestine solidarity. It was almost as though they had internalized the, the tactics of their oppressor. And who benefited the most in the end was Zionist groups. Palestine solidarity was so busy fighting over Syria that that they couldn't even unite for the basic cause of Palestine, Miko. I mean, it doesn't, it's just shocking to me that people couldn't come together, even if they disagreed, to hear a talk about Palestine, right? Who benefits from that at the end of the day? Yeah, yeah that, was, that, was a big, that, that was a big rift. Um, Asa, we're talking about the, the tactics, and I remember something, um, like I said, I was, I was at Labor Party conferences 2017, 2018, Mm. I was actually allowed to go in 2019. They wouldn't allow me into the in. They wouldn't give me the pass. I think you were denied a pass as a journalist in 2019. That's right. But one thing I saw that was interesting: 2017, um, there was a big pro-Palestine presence in the main room, but there was also Labor Friends of Israel had a big booth. 2018, there was no Labor Friends of Israel presence at all, and inside the main hall, 
uh, especially leading up to to um, to the leader's uh, speech, which I was denied, but that's another story, um, to which I was denied entry. Um, it looked like a big, the whole conference looked like a big pro-Palestine rally. Everybody was carrying Palestinian flags. Yeah, it was great. It was, it was incredible. But the fact that there was no presence for the Labor Friends of Israel worried me for some reason, because on the one hand, there were <laughs> pretense. There was a pretense of this, you know, yes, 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 we won. All these pro-Palestine um, uh, resolutions were, were, were being discussed and so forth. And then, of course, we saw what happened at the end of 2019 with a crash. Um, I don't know if that was part of their tactic to just step away, let the, you know, let the people on the floor do whatever they want to do because they had a bigger agenda. There was something bigger that they were dealing with. Um, but what do you see as their tactics? Well, I think their tactics have been, especially when we're talking about the Ministry of Strategic Affairs, the Israel lobby and the left um, and the wider solidarity movement uh, is division. That's what it comes down to. It's, it's divide and rule. And it kind of does relate a bit to Anya's comments just now about Syria and the solidarity movement. Um, I think we could probably have a whole panel, a whole discussion on that whole issue. Um, I, uh, yeah, I mean, I, without going too much into that, I, I just basically, I essentially agree with everything Anya just said. Like, I, I think it's been really divisive. But uh, specifically about um, the, the uh, pro-Israel organizations and their strategy for division, they specifically tried to do this. Like, this was set out in policy papers. Like, and and like, it, it makes sense, right? Because this is something that um, empires and pro-imperialist movements have been doing from day one, right? So this is something, Zionism has always been a regressive, uh, anti-socialist, anti-communist, anti-progressive movement, like um, it, it, from the beginning, like right from the beginning of the history of Zionism. And it, it, it has always presented itself to policymakers. It's always sold itself to policymakers as um, something to um, get the left to, to something that will help them in their um, campaigns against the left, against uh, socialist organizations, against communist organizations. And what um, pro-Israel organizations did in the Labour Party specifically was they came in and they very deliberately tried to create divisions. And this was something well, like we've, we've mentioned the Raid Institute several times now. And they are they do have strong ties to the ministry of strategic affairs and their, their their policies have been endorsed by the ministry of strategic affairs um and um uh, i i hope that um an article that um, i'm going to refer to now will be uh, i'll just send it to michael hopefully he can put it through to the chat but in this article we talk about a raised institute report from uh 2017 where uh, again, it relates to what Esty said about um, intersectionality. They're noticing the um, uh, sort of wave and the rise of the, the analysis of intersectionality, where you, you try and work together uh, to combat different forms of oppression. Um, and uh, the, the pro-Israel organizations, of course, have seen that this as a threat, right? Because if, um, for example, Black Lives Matter protesters and you know the movement for black lives um uh organizers and grassroots people start expressing solidarity as they did in 2015 with um palestinians 
um, then these groups end up working together and that creates from Israel's perspective more of a threat to their systems of um, oppression and in these strategy documents they they in their you know attack and sabotage documents this 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 particular one for 2017 they talk about the threat of intersectionality as well um, and we we saw these kind of um, tactics in, so just to give one small example in in the UK uh, Labour Party we saw Joan Ryan who was um, at the time the chairperson of Labour Friends of Israel so she was a, a, an MP a Labour MP from the right of the party, very anti-Corbyn all along, vehemently anti-Corbyn, um, and she was head of this pro-Israel lobby group. And we saw in the lobby, the, the first documentary, the UK documentary, she was caught basically on camera red-handed. Well, first of all, discussing a million pounds um, uh, into of funding, a million pounds of, uh, of funding from the Israeli embassy for trips to... Uh, for trips to occupied Palestine, these kind of, uh, you know, uh, under Israeli, pro-Israel uh, junkets, essentially, um, which it seemed like she was talking about MPs, but she, they later claimed it was it was students. It, it, may, it may have been, or it may have been both. But the point is, there was a lot of money going into this. Secondly, she was, the thing she was caught on hand, red-handed doing, uh, which was the most shocking, although not surprising really, was essentially fabricating an anti-Semitic incident where there was a woman who, who um, came to the, the uh, Labour Friends of Israel stand at the time and uh, she wanted to discuss the, the, the so-called two-state solution and so forth and was challenging Labour Friends of Israel on, on their position and so forth. Um, and uh, she wasn't, Domai wasn't able to answer the questions and she ended up walking away. But then she went, then went on to report this person who was a member of the Labour Party and, and the Palestine Solidarity Campaign uh, to the party essentially for anti-Semitism, alleged anti-Semitism, um, just because she talked about the fact that Labour Friends of Israel has influence in the Labour Party, which is just objectively true. You know, you can debate on the, the level of the influence and, and I would say that it's certainly declining, but it's, it's there. There's no doubt that it's there. Um, and uh, so, and, and she did more than that. You know, she she went to the um, some of the newspapers, um, the, the you know anti-Palestinian newspapers like um, Jewish News and Jewish Chronicle in the UK, um, and it created this whole um, you know ridiculous witch hunt about oh, there's anti-Semitism every year for the last few years at Labour conference has been hype about oh, anti-Semitism at the Labour Party conference. You look at the details, and it's actually as as with. Uh, the it was done around you Miko as you mentioned you know uh, and it was actually just act criticism of Israel criticism of, of Israel's official ideology uh, Zionism so what this is attempted to do is to create division in the left so people on the left who are maybe not that familiar with um, the issue of Palestine the cause of Palestine and the fact that the Zionist movement is a movement of oppression against Palestinians. They maybe have a weak understanding of Zionism and think, well, Zionism, Jews, you know, we don't want to be anti-Jewish, you know, just ha on this very weak level, with a shallow sort of level. And so therefore it's our task to um, show the truth that Zionism doesn't represent all Jews by any means. Um, and uh, it... I, I suppose we're getting into the last part of the discussion now more about um, what can we do to counter it. But I think this is this is their their strategy is to create division, is to create division to sow fear, uncertainty, and doubt, and false allegations of anti-Semitism. Uh, in some circumstances, have been really quite successful in that way.
Yeah, you know, um, there was, uh, I was just reminded, all this talk about the, you know, them working as an intelligence agency and the strategic affairs, I almost forgot a couple of years ago in Jerusalem, and um, there was actually a conference on how to combat BDS. And um, uh, I happened to be in Jerusalem, so I signed up and attended. Um, and uh, I showed up there, of course, not knowing what to expect. It was, it was a massive, massive conference. Yeah, there's a lot of money that goes into these things, you can tell. I, you know, I, couldn't, it's, it's I, couldn't, I couldn't believe, I mean, just the free food and the, just the thousands of participants. And, and they were former, you know, Mossad operatives and everybody from the president of the state of Israel, journalists were there, it was sponsored by the Yot Hornot and Stand With Us and so on. Uh, and um, one of the things that actually came up was, uh, and this was said by the then minister, I believe, of internal security. It wasn't their done, it was someone else, uh, Katz, I think, that the Mossad has not yet, and, and, and you know, Ali Abu Nima actually, and um, Ali Abu Nima and, um, was one of the, you know, one of the, one of the, one of the faces of, of the enemy, uh, as well as Omar Barutli. And uh, you'd think they were, you know, God knows what, some, you know, mastermind terrorists. And they very clearly said the Mossad has not yet used all the tools in its toolbox. Yeah, I remember. Uh, yeah. To, uh, to target and to, to get this done and to fight BDS. And those two faces, probably the two, you know, most nonviolent kind uh, faces, uh, you know, if you know the people, would never resort to violence. And these, these were the faces of, uh, that, were, that were brought up. I think this is, um, uh, looking back now, it's, it's really quite horrifying. And I remember when Jeremy mm -hmm. Corbyn uh, was, you know, at the height of, of you know, of, of his, of his uh, political life as, as labor leader and so forth, I thought, you know, they're not going to let this man become prime minister. There's no way they're going to let, where they're going to, how they're going to achieve it, where they're going to stop uh, in terms of tactics. Um, it was hard to say, especially looking back at what was said in that conference. Um, but clearly they found other ways to, to, to bring him down and to bring down uh, labor. Um, we should... Yeah, just, sorry, just one yeah, quick no, point on that. Just, um, the, the, um, just to say that Joan Ryan, who I mentioned in that example of um, having fabricated this allegation of anti-Semitism, um, being caught on camera doing it, um, also in the documentary, uh, the cover footage, one of her um, employees, co-workers within Labour Friends of Israel, their full-time um, parliamentary officer, Michael Rubin, admitted that um, Joan will talk most days to Shai Masot. So he was saying that the Israeli embassy uh, operative spy um, who was sent packing after the, it was exposed in, in the film came out. So she, he's essentially saying, we we say we're not fre labor friends of israeli embassy but actually we're kind of not in so many words he was saying like you know we're we're essentially a cut out uh front group for the israeli embassy so this the, joan ryan was talking most days to the embassy you know so it, it it's not as if they're this independent organization that they they make out they are they, they do work very closely together i think what, what's coming out of this uh so far is that um this is actually far worse, far deeper, and should be far more of, of, of much more concern to people 
in the US and in the UK um, in terms of the intervention, in terms of just how deep this intervention is. Um, I, was just, I was just remembering when I entered that conference uh, a couple of years ago in Jerusalem, I didn't, you know, I didn't think anybody would recognize me, but you know, you never know. And then as soon as I walked in, I suddenly hear somebody say, oh, look, there's Miko. And it was Dan Cohen and Anthony Lowenstein who were there, two great journalists, uh, also <laughs> who were there trying to hide away. And so the three of us stuck together. And it was, it, it was, it was really scary and shocking. And um, just going just real quick back, I'm looking at the chats here. There's some really good stuff. Uh, Helena Co uh, uh, Coben just posted something about what you said, Anya, about the, uh, um, the Syria issue. And uh, she had Max, and she, she did a whole series series on the issue. And there's a link to to the work, and they were discussing uh, the Syria issue and what that meant to the Palestine uh, uh, solidarity team or solidarity, you know, uh, groups. Uh, and there's a link there to 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 that. Um, but let's move on to the final question, which is really how do we combat this? How do we tackle this? How do we um, expose this? I suppose would be one would one thing we should do. And then also, uh, where do we go from here in terms of pushing this extremely important uh, issue of Palestine and justice for Palestine forward so that we do get to a point where we could have a Jeremy Corbyn prime minister, or we could have, if not, uh, hopefully somebody more progressive than, than Bernie Sanders, a less Zionist uh, than Bernie Sanders, but still somebody who's willing, who's able and willing uh, to say the things that need to be said. And then get into a position where they're actually able to change policy and, and, and uh, affect things on the ground. So uh, I'll start with you again, Esti, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, you know, from what everybody's saying, we have to remember that fear is one of the tactics that they use. Um, you know, I was uh, introduced into the movement by finding a wanted poster on my front doorstep about three months after I launched JVPLA. So you know, fear is what they use. And I think what we need to use um, to tackle this phenomenon is one, we need to hold the media accountable. Um, and there are ways to do that, you know, by, you know, consistently writing letters to the editor and op-eds, um, you know, through the tactics of, you know, going through the system by educating elective representatives and their staffers and developing relationships with them. Uh, you know, being politely persistent, you know, of course, in most cases that needs to be accompanied by an outside campaign, either calling them out or pushing them publicly, um, sometimes supporting them when they're attacked as anti-Semites, depending on, you know, what their positions are. But we also need to use the opportunities to expose the parts of the stories that the mainstream media leaves out. And obviously, you know, publications like Electronic Intifada and the Gray Zone Project and, and the Intercept and Mondo Weiss do this regularly. But for instance, Michael Flynn's case is in the news right now. It's a great time to bump up the fact that Michael Flynn had contacted the Russian ambassador during, uh, you know, December of 2016 as part of the Trump transition team, uh, their effort to halt the UN resolution holding Israel accountable at the request of Israeli officials after you know they became it became clear to them that the Obama administration wasn't going to veto it i think we need to keep pushing progressive elected representatives on palestine to make sure that it remains on the slate of progressive issues um, 
you know, which it definitely is. We need to make sure, for instance, for organizations that are endorsing candidates, we need to make sure that there's a question about P Palestine on every progressive organization's endorsement questionnaire. Um, you know, we we need to look into you know exactly you know what happens when um, and expose what they do. Uh, just just last month, just in late April. The platform committee for Nevada's biggest county, uh, Democratic committee in Clark County, had approved a platform that included three planks in support of Palestinian rights. Um, they were put forth by Bernie Sanders delegates who basically, you know, had the majority um, and they, they uh, called to end the blockade of Gaza. One, um, supported the right of return, one to repeal the anti-boycott legislation, which Nevada is one of 27 states that have passed, which are unconstitutional. And yet hours after the platform was published, it was party leaders acted to strip the planks out of the platform. And so we have to get involved um, in these things. It's not for everybody, but by getting involved in you know, local politics and by getting on these um, committees like the folks in Clark County did is where we gain power within the system to, to, you know, have an inside game as well as an outside game fighting against. Um, somebody had put in the chat, you know, to talk about, um, you know, what happened when APAC attacked Bernie and, you know, they were smart. They knew that if they attacked him for being progressive, that it wouldn't be, you know, that they wouldn't buy them anything. So they insidiously put, you know, these huge ad campaigns, social media campaigns, talking about, you know, how old he is and his health, you know, what about his health? And, you know, try to, you know, get into the heads. They, 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 uh, uh, they have to assume they were enormously frustrated by the large number of young Jews that were part of the Bernie campaign to the point that in cities across America, Jews for Bernie, um, you know, little confabs, you know, were popping up and beginning to link together and work together. Um, so yeah, I think education, education, education. And when we think that public officials know what they're talking about, I promise you, they don't. We need to educate them. I, I agree. Uh, I couldn't agree with you more. Um, I'm seeing here also look at the chats. I see some comments, great comments here from, uh, you know, Daniel, a friend from, from Spain, um, and Barbara from Milano, people that I've, you know, I've been in touch with. Um, there's another, I think, I think another important thing that is required, you touched on that, Esther, a little bit. You know, we need to change the story. Um, uh, one of the comments here by Barbara, you know, this issue of, that they always they always claim that Israel is a democracy, and the proof is that look there are Arabs in the Knesset, and the story of the joint list right now is an interesting one, because really it's the only functioning political party in the Knesset right now, because they're not they're not buying for seats and power; they're just getting things done. So they're really doing some some really good work. Um, but people are forgetting that the the the, 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 the even though they are the third largest um, block in the Knesset. And even though they had uh, really a, a remarkable uh, rise in their in their strength in the last election, 15 seats is something nobody would have imagined they could possibly ever have. Um, 
their voice doesn't count because of the way the Knesset works, because of the way Israeli politics works. And so the fact that they're there, if anything, is only one more symptom to the fact that Israel is an apartheid regime and Palestinians don't have a voice even when they do vote, because they could have double the number of seats in the Knesset and still be ignored which of course they are largely, even though they do excellent work, and nobody's ever going to sit with them because they're Arabs, even if they do have uh, mutual interests. Um, so changing the story, you know, taking these, all these claims that they put out there and changing the story and putting it out in a way that of course is, is, is more truthful, I think is really, really important. And now Anya, you've been, you know, you've been reporting and working on issues that are, that are tough and unpopular, and you've been doing it I have to say, really courageously, whether, again, it's, it's, it's Palestine or Venezuela. Um, but uh, what, what, how do we move these important issues forward? You were talking about Palestine. How do we move it forward? How do we, how do we tackle this reality where uh, all of this, all, all, you know, all these resources and, and all of this work is being done to shut down, basically, this topic? Um, and how do we move beyond that? I think it goes back to the point I made at the beginning, which is I truly do believe we are winning this debate on the grassroots level and even likely within both parties. I think there's among the average U.S. person more of an awareness of the special relationship the United States has with Israel and, and more of a critical view of it. And that's supported by polls and numbers that we actually see. And so we need to have the confidence of a winning movement. Everything that Esty mentioned makes total sense. She is very effective and, and understands more than I do how to actually move political figures. But I think the point, I'm so glad, Essie, that you brought up, for example, the case of Michael Flynn, which is all over media this week. Michael Flynn, the national security advisor for Trump, was the first casualty of Russiagate, what we've spent the entirety, or I should say what our mainstream liberal and corporate media establishment has spent the entirety of the Trump administration ramping up, believing that for some, some, somehow the Trump administration and Trump himself were actually controlled by Russia. And the first individual they pinned this theory on was Michael Flynn because of this conversation he had with the Russian ambassador to the United States, Sergei Kislyak. I was at court the day Michael Flynn pl pleaded guilty to, to charges. And I remember reading the charge sheet and my jaw dropped and I was like, this is amazing. He had a conversation with the Russian ambassador on behalf of Zionist interest behind him, essentially Jared Kushner, saying, we would like it uh, if you, uh, if you veto this resolution at the United Nations condemning illegal Israeli settlement activity because we know the Obama administration is going to take this amazingly courageous step and not vote on the resolution for the first time in U.S. history, but that you know, if Russia can step forward and veto this resolution, it would be great, which anybody who understands something about Russian diplomacy if, if, if Michael Flynn was a Russian agent, I mean, that just shows you right there that he knew nothing. And also the arrogance to think the United States could influence Russia on behalf of Israel. When I read that indictment, I was thinking, Russiagate is actually Israelgate. Of course, nobody will talk about that, but I think the more we talk about it, the better, because it really is remarkable. It's right there in this huge mainstream story that's getting endless amounts of coverage. Israel, Israeli pressure on US officials, it's really, it really sums it all up. But 
as for what else we can do to 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 combat these these interests i think there's two things we there's what we do between ourselves and what we do with public officials and on the public official front i think at this point there is no excuse for anybody branding themselves as a progressive to take any position other than critical of, of the special relationship with Israel and opposed to any initiatives really that, that APAC and its lobbies put forward. That's why I was so disappointed last week to see reports that Ilhan Omar, someone who's been held up as one of the most progressive members of Congress, actually signing on to an APAC letter, a, a, a position which is to and it's actually a trump administration position to force the u.n to implement an arms embargo on iran this is i, I sent a link to the group actually it was in al monitor and a few other outlets there's and in her her office actually responded saying that because there was nothing they opposed in the resolution the they couldn't uh refuse to sign it even though it was an apac initiative come on the U.S. is not in any position to implement an arms embargo on Iran, especially if it's not in the same effort uh, trying to implement one on Israel or Saudi Arabia. Absolutely ridiculous that anybody calling themselves a progressive would sign on to that letter, and I think she should be held accountable for that. AOC as well, she's you know, the squad kind of representing this new generation of progressive voices and now people are kind of waking up to the fact that she is willing to play the game of the corporate democrats she for example said that she didn't believe tara reed the woman who stepped forward and accused joe biden of sexually assaulting her she also voted for the the first round of the corporate bailout that came as a result of the COVID 19 pandemic but we should remember the first signal she gave that she was willing to walk back some of her more progressive positions was on palestine she ran yeah. a campaign speaking about occupation and then the minute she won the first interview she gave she was questioned by a reporter very lightly about her position on palestine and she backed away and said oh i'm not an expert on this subject and that should have been a sign it was for me that if you're going to sell out the palestinians the minute you win an election you can't be trusted as as a progressive warrior who are you going to sell out behind closed doors if that's what you're willing to do in front of my face i'm not saying that we should give up on her entirely but they have to be pushed even senator sanders was asked during one of these presidential debates or the, the, the democratic debates whether he would move the embassy back to Jerusalem and he or back to Tel Aviv I'm sorry away out of Jerusalem and he wouldn't give a clear answer he wouldn't just say yes absolutely that is international law I mean it should be very simple but apparently it wasn't for him I found that to be disappointing and I also I'm a little turned off by this narrative that Sanders put forward in that answer, which I hear a lot, which is that Netanyahu is, well, first he was saying Netanyahu, he, he was speaking as though Israel was so bad and right-wing and terrible because Netanyahu is the prime minister. Miko, I would love for you to comment because anybody who knew anything about Israeli politics at that time would not be looking at the situation and saying Benny Gantz would be any better for Palestinians if he were to take over as prime minister. But they don't only do do this, this they don't 
to this tactic of making Netanyahu represent Israel, but they also tie in Israel with all of the other governments and countries in the world that we don't like or that we think are human rights abusers. He says, I don't, I'm not friends with Putin in Russia. I'm not friends with Modi in India. I'm not friends with, uh, I think he threw in Daniel Ortega at some point, or he had in the past Nicaragua, uh, maybe not in that specific answer, or Hungary, Viktor Orban. And I think that's just a really simplistic way of viewing the world. No country, perhaps other than Saudi Arabia, but no country enjoys the level of special relationship that Israel does with the U.S. government. And nobody is really calling for the, the restructuring of the entire state the way the way that the Palestine solidarity movement is when it comes to Israel. Nobody's calling for boycott and divestment and sanctions on India. At least I'm not. I would be opposed to that. The only reason that we support boycott, divestment, and sanctions, and sanctions being this very, this tool that I'm completely opposed to. I dedicate most of my career right now to opposing sanctions on Venezuela, Nicaragua, Cuba, Iran, but why do we actually support sanctions on Israel? It's because we we need to dismantle the entire state. It's an apartheid system. It's a unique situation. It's uniquely evil. It's uniquely backed by the United States. And so that's why we, we support this very unique tool in terms of opposing it, something which successfully broke down a an apartheid state before in history. And so we should avoid lumping in Palestine with all of these other uh, uh, states. There's a reason that we're targeting it the way that it is. But, but we at the same time should also remember and, and be steadfast in the, in the belief that Palestine isn't an island. It is part of a, a, a regional policy of the United States and it's ultimately an extension of U.S and European colonial and imperial interests in the Middle East. And so if we view Palestine and Israel as part of that puzzle, then we're less likely to get bogged down in these very damaging uh, debates, divide and conquer debates that want to split some people off for opposing U.S. intervention in Syria because it really all fits together. And we should defend each other when, they're, when we're attacked unfairly such as Asa, such as Ali, all of these people who, who I think, what, when, when they're attacked, it only serves Zionist interests. And if we act united and we act confident and very clear in our, in our view of Israel uh, as a uniquely destructive and illegal apartheid state, but also that one that serves a very clear purpose as a tool of U.S. empire and control in the region, then we can combat it on, on the personal level and then also on, on the more political and, and powerful level when we're confronting even progressives who aren't willing to take brave positions on, on Palestine. Yeah, that's, that's fantastic. That's, that, that was brilliant, Anya. Thank you for, for that. That was, you really summed it up well. Um, I, I love your, your comment that uh, the confidence of a winning movement. I think that's you put on a, on a t-shirt. Uh, because a lot of people who are on the, you know, with Palestine Solidarity uh, already walk around like they've lost. And so what's the point, you know, of getting up in the morning? Or um, that they're afraid, that they're afraid to, to stand strong or stand next to someone who's being attacked. And that's one of the comments here, again, uh, for, for a friend from Liverpool, Jack, is saying, well, if, if they did this, people are afraid 
and somebody else here from the U.S. also made the comment, well, if they're doing this to famous people, if they're doing this to Corbyn, if they're doing this to Mark Lamont Hill and, and Angela Davis, then what am I going to do to to me, who's, you know, I'm just, a, I'm just a kid in college, or I'm just an activist at a church or so, or, or wherever, and then, you know, think of what, you know, what kind of damage they can do to me, and people are afraid. And your comment about Sanders is right. Uh, you know, he always, he, he has this little preamble. He goes, I'm very proud to be Jewish and I support Israel, as though being Jewish and supporting Israel is somehow connected. You know, being Jewish is one thing, supporting Israel is supporting racism. And you summed it up, I think, really, really well. Or supporting Netanyahu. I think that's really dangerous. That's, that that, yeah, so, so that's what I was going to say. You know, Netanyahu, if we look at every single prime minister and every single government since Israel was established, Netanyahu is the natural successor to all of them. In other words, there's no break here. Netanyahu is not unique. From Ben-Gurion, who was the first prime minister, all the way through to today, and if Benny Gantz ever becomes prime minister, or anybody else for that matter, because it doesn't look like Netanyahu is ever going to give up that seat, um, the, the, there is no difference because this is, th these are the natural successors to a racist ideology, to a racist state, to Zionism and so forth. Um, so Asa, I, I want to turn to you, you know, talking about how do we, you know, how do we move forward? In the UK, I saw two things. One, I remember, um, Jewish people within labor created JVL, Jewish Voice for Labor, which is kind of like a progressive, a Jewish uh, movement within labor. And then uh, Chris Williamson has his Festival of Resistance, which perhaps is, 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 is a sign of, of, of some, uh, op, you know, a reason for optimism. Um, what is your take on, on how we move forward and how we push this agenda to where we want it to be? I think the key to all of this is, and as, as the other, uh, we've all been saying, really is solidarity that's that's got to be the main fight back really i mean it's a point chris made last week um you know how do we count all of this uh, to answer your you know your your hypothetical uh labor member who's kind of or or palestine solidarity member who's worried about well you know they've done, they've done this to jeremy corbyn they were even trying it with bernie sanders they've done this to famous people um, how, what can I do? Well, the point is they can pick us off one by one by one, but they can't defeat all of us. And we, you know, the, the thing is that Corbyn didn't really try. That's the thing. That's why he was defeated. He didn't. Yeah, you mentioned that in your in your interview. You were, you were quite critical of, of his response to this. Yeah, you know, he's a nice bloke, but he didn't. He didn't try. He never tried to defeat the Israel lobby. He, I mean, he he really pandered to them really because he didn't. He didn't, you know, I'm, I'm not going to just sit here and be more radical than now and say he was a sellout and all this kind of stuff. No, it's not. The, the fact is, he just, he didn't, even when the film, The Lobby, came out, he, he didn't do anything to stop the pro-Israel groups doing what they were doing. Um, and so if he didn't try, then you, you can't say that um, you couldn't succeed if you did try, you know. I mean, it... it the the point is when when there's solidarity and we all stand together they can't defeat us and what you mentioned earlier about all those uh palestinian flags at the labor party conference was a good example of that and that was a that was a really great illustration of how isolated the israel lobby really is within the labor party within the left uh, within wider progressive movements you know because accompanying that display of the flags and so forth it, the point of that was that it was to raise morale it was an initiative by the palestine solidarity camp and it gave out all these flags and it was to raise morale 
at the 2018 conference to build support for the motion, which called for, um, without specifically naming BDS because they were being overly cautious, in my, in my opinion, they were being overly cautious not to mention specifically BDS, but it, it was to, to essentially have um, elements of BDS, to have an arms embargo. If a Labour government came in, it would end arms trade with Israel, which is an important element of, of BDS. Um, uh, and, you know, if it was enacted, it could have a, a, a massive impact. Um, so for two years running, Labour Party conferences overwhelmingly passed these, ma these motions saying a Labour government, if it came into power, would end the arms trade with Israel. I mean, that's historic. That, mean, that is massive. I mean, again, even if, of course, Corbyn didn't come to power, we don't have a Labour government, so there's that. But even if he had, there's a question of whether it would have been implemented because it was just party, it was conference policy. It wasn't official um, from the top of the Labour Party. But it was important, you know, it was because it, it built this grassroots um, support. And it, it, again, it's another example of what we've been saying. We, we have the grassroots. We, we are the grassroots. Um, and it, we're winning on that level. And it was historic, again, because the Labour Party, the British Labour Party, was really, um, uh, in the words of one historian, um, large parts of it, it, it in the 30s and the 40s were Zionism plus plus. That's what, you know, they, they were more Zionist than the Zionists in a lot of ways because they wanted, there was one um, famous uh, Labour Party politician who, who became a minister in um, the 1945 government, you know, this great reforming uh, government built the welfare state built the nhs but it was imperialist you know it was literally running an empire the british empire at the time um and it and he wanted to have um a jewish state in in libya as well as as well as in palestine you know so it it was uh, you know to expand um the jewish the so-called so jewish state uh, e even that far so there were some real extremists in the labor party so for the labor party grassroots to have to pass these motions in favour of essentially BDS, of an arms embargo, um, and even last year to call for the right of return for Palestinian refugees. It's massive. Yeah, you know, we're missing, we're missing our own victories, you know? We, we don't have enough confidence in our own victories. Um, but that is, it's, it's huge. It's huge. And it, we really need to, to, build on, to, to build on that. So I think if we stand together, it doesn't matter what the dirty tactics, they can be defeated, you know? Yeah, and you know the the it's what I said when we at the open when we when I opened, you know we were very close. I mean, Jeremy Corbyn was just a few thousand votes away from becoming prime minister. Yeah, in twenty seventeen. Uh, yeah, and, that, and that's enormous to have somebody with that with you know like Jeremy Corbyn with his uh, positions on all issues, but particularly on Palestine, to come that close to becoming prime minister, and that would have been a game changer. I, I, as you said, I agree. And last, and last week also, Ali talked about the, the, the importance of um, uh, holding their feet to the fire. So in other words, even after they're elected, even after they are in, in, in power to hold their feet to the fire, um, we didn't vote for them, I think he said, to be my best friend or my aunt or uncle, but to, uh, to serve us and, and, and to serve the interests that we believe in. Yeah, um, I think I think we wrap this up quite nicely. I mean, you guys, I uh, have to say, this is this is fantastic. Uh, the stuff's coming out here today, um, and there's some great uh, comments here on the chat. Uh, but I think we should open it up now for Q and A. So, Jamil, if you're there and you've got the questions, let's um, let's go ahead and and, and start. Yeah, sure thing. Um, so we got a lot of questions. Um, let's try to get through as many as we can. 
So uh, question number one, this one's from David. What is the mechanism used by the various Israel lobbies that were used to derail Bernie Sanders, including Bloomberg's entry in the presidential race and the resources he gave to the Democratic Party during and after his presidential bid, along with the Democratic majority for Israel? I don't doubt that Bloomberg is an ultra-Zionist, but how does his media empire rate in regards to its objectivity towards Palestine and Israel? So I think David's talking about Bloomberg News and Bloomberg TV and that kind of thing as well. Let's just go around, you know, SD, you want to start? Yeah, I mean, I'm not an expert on Bloomberg News, but definitely, you know, Bloomberg was part of the play. I mean, from early on, he said that he got in and that his treasure trove, he was going to, that he was building an infrastructure that whether he was the candidate or not would be handed off, except if it was Bernie Sanders. So, you know, giving Americans, you know, Democrats, uh, members of the Democratic Party, this belief that, oh, so we'll have unlimited resources to win a campaign unless it's Bernie Sanders. Um, I think that, you know, that was disgusting, but I think that, you know, they used all their, you know, all their, their tools in their kit. Like I said, um, you know, trying to um, be target young people because it was the base of, you know, Bernie's campaign. Um, I think that, uh, you know, making, trying to, you know, very, very, you know, slyly attack him um, and, and use social media against him in ways that, you know, weren't, you know, calling him out for the, the, his progressive policies as much, but really, um, you know, to sow seeds of doubt uh, in the campaign, in his rhetoric about him, about his ability, you know, to be healthy and to, uh, to you know, take the office, you know, should he win the election. Anya, what are your thoughts? I think we covered some of the ways they, the, that Zionist organizations and the tactics they use to silence politicians and activists. And on the issue of Sanders specifically, I think it goes back to what I said about the Movement for Palestine Solidarity being a, a winning movement. Excuse me, I'm having a runny nose for, because of allergies. I just had to take care of that. But, um, it was, it, it's a winning movement, and it's also a generational issue in the same way that the progressive movement in the United States is winning overall, and there's this, this new excitement that was set, seen behind Bernie Sanders to support a, a wide spectrum of progressive policies, that uh, Palestine is part of that new generation. If that generation, if the movement, regardless of Sanders, because as we've said several times, I think he's even less progressive than we like would have liked to have seen. But if that movement Sanders represents were allowed to rise in the Democratic Party, Palestine would win as a result of that. And so the suppression of the Sanders campaign led by just the establishment wing of the party, particularly former President Obama, who we know was the one who made phone calls to Pete Buttigieg and Amy Klobuchar, encouraging them to drop out and build this coalition of, of neoliberal, old-style Democrats 
behind Joe Biden to crush Sanders. That action by the, the old wing of the Democratic Party is what crushed the Sanders movement. And so keeping the momentum al alive behind the movement as a whole and as a movement beyond Sanders, I think will be key to bringing Palestine and justice for Palestine-Palestinian solidarity to, to halls of power in the United States. It's gonna, going to be a long and difficult fight, but we have to be aware of the tricks they're, they're rolling out against us, such as using someone like Barack Obama uh, in order to silence the, the progressive wing. And we just need to, to be strong and confident and, and believe that we're going to win. Yeah, Asa, you wanna jump in? Uh, yeah, I I, uh, I agree uh, that uh, with what both panelists said. Um, I think uh, Anya's right that um, uh, Sanders's defeat was more about uh, the establishment media and the sort of neoliberal establishment of the Democratic Party rather than. Uh, the Israel lobby and Zionist organizations per se. I think they were certainly involved, uh, but I don't think we saw them really ramp up the full campaign. They uh, didn't have to. Yeah, exactly. Right. They it did. I, I think you were right. What you said earlier that if he had received the nomination, um, you know, had the political circumstances been different, uh, we would have really seen it gone into overdrive. And I, you know, I and others were writing about this uh, for been saying that for a while and the response was often that oh well Bernie Sanders is Jewish so therefore they won't be able to do that it won't work and I was never convinced by that I I, I think that um and the reason for that is that that the the so-called anti-semitism crisis in the Labour Party was never about anti-semitism it was never about genuine anti-semitism it was about defeating the left and it was about defending Israel simple as that so they would have done the same thing and they targeted uh, so many Jews in the UK Labour Party, half yeah. the people were suspended were Jewish. Exactly. Ask Miko if being Jewish prevents no. you from being labelled an anti-Semite. Exactly, exactly. And they have a new term, they call it auto-anti-Semite, they have a new term. <laughs> yeah, and it's, it's I mean, it, it, again, like uh, Jewish Voice for Labour that you mentioned before, you know, most, most of those activists jewish activists were targeted in the, in the anti so-called anti-semitism crisis smear campaign but they 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 would have ramped it up and it was about create again it was about creating division and that's what we did see it, small elements of it early early signs of it you know it with with the squad you know aoc um her kind of um weakness and si early as anya mentioned early signals on the issue and even in veiled attacks on ilhan omar for her comments uh, about the Israel lobby, saying you know that there is an Israel lobby and it uses money to try and influence politicians, it's an objective fact. It's a you know it's a reality. Um, they, they the Israel lobby does do that. APAC uses dark money to try and influence politicians. It is just a reality. Again, something that was shown in 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 the Israel lobby documentary. So it's it it's about creating division. They don't have anything else. They they have no positive vision. Yeah. And no one is actually anti-Semitic who they're attacking as being anti-Semitic. It's not a right. real issue. <laughs>
In fact, a lot of the people doing the attacking actually on the right are very anti-Semitic. And, you know, President Trump says anti-Semitic stuff all the time to rooms full of Jews. Yeah. And, you know, they all forgive him and vote and give them, give him. Yeah, as a, as a president who literally called neo-Nazis, you know, anti, openly anti-Jewish neo-Nazis um, marching that, you know, saying that Jews will not replace us. Say they're very fine people. And at the same time, he's embracing these Israel lobby groups and they're embracing him. And, at, you know, at best, they're offering very muted, tame criticisms of his, of his language. Yeah. You know, I see there's a comment here by Tony Greenstein, who was one, one Jewish man, he was a Jewish member of Labour who, who was attacked a lot, in fact. And he's saying we are all this Semitic because because they were able to get the new definition of anti-Semitism. And I remember speaking to somebody in uh, um, uh, the Jewish uh, labor movement or whatever they're called, the Zionist group within labor. And, you know, they referred yeah. to that quite confidently saying, well, here, this is the definition. And so obviously these people are uh, anti-Semitic because this is the new definition of anti-Semitism that we go by. Uh, Jamil, should we move on? Yeah. So this next question is from Anthony. Uh, the question is, I've seen reporting in the Gray Zone Project about British military intelligence running propaganda operations against its own population, including targeting Corbyn during the recent election. How can populations possibly defend themselves against intelligence services, which are reportedly, reportedly running psychological operations against their own people to influence elections like this? Does British intelligence work with Isra Israeli intelligence against the minds of its own people? Anybody want to tackle that? <laughs> yeah, I could come into that. Um, I, I think these, those are really good questions. And I think it's a difficult one. How can, how can we possibly you know, defend ourselves against this so seemingly you know, insurmountable power of the state? Um, it's difficult. I, I, I'm reminded of um, the example of the Black Panthers in the 60s and the 70s. The Black Panthers had the entire might of the American state attack them on all levels um the fbi would do things like um they would actually fabricate letters i i i read about at least one instance of this where uh, uh, letters between letter a, a fake letter ostensibly from one black panther party chapter being sent to uh, you know another black party uh black panther party chapter on the other side of um the continent you know denouncing the other chapter in order to ferment um, and, you know, to, to, to ferment this kind of uh, internal feuds and to get people to fall out with each other. And I think we, we have seen um, there are, it is likely that there have been, you know, 21st century equivalent versions of that, you know, being uh, fermented and uh, it, 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 by probably by British intelligence services. I think it's that, that kind of intervention is, is, has been done, if it has been done, has been done a lot more subtly than the pro-Israel, the Israeli intervention that has been done because that's often been quite open. But how can we defend ourselves against it? I think it's, I think it's hard. Um, I think it's to just be aware of the reality of historical realities like that, that it, that it does happen. Um, and to, again, to try and create solidarity and to say, okay, well, you know, this person's being accused of anti-Semitism um, and don't just, don't just take the course that some people on the left, unfortunately in the UK have done, which is 
their first position is okay well we have to believe that well you know you don't actually because you have to look at the facts there is such a thing as objective reality so you you know you can actually find that out you know it's um it it it, it, the facts actually do matter you know it's not all about perception and you know it goes back to the point you made earlier asa about solidarity you know the black panthers and what they was done by the fbi to the black panthers is a great example uh there's a great book about the murder of fred hampton uh and, and you know the actual murder and and the and the fbi policies that led to his assassin you know to his to his assassination um and then the story that i wrote about in my book injustice the hurryland foundation and what is being done today in america to muslims all, all across the country um the, the intelligence services are all over it their homeland security and the fbi and uh, who else who who, know, who knows who else is out there in the mosques in the in the in the muslim community and everybody is scared so if we do not stand up when it happens to these other groups and of course it's going to end up happening to everybody else so i, I think th i think that light is the best disinfectant as the saying goes oh, right absolutely. so absolutely. so i i mean i look i mean i quite often just assume that my emails could be read right so i at the end of the i mean we all have secrets right we all have our own personal lives and so on and so forth but at the same time at the end of the day what we, we we don't we are what we say we are right we we are for freedom equality and justice for everybody you know and 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 we're not called a, a, a small point on what Anya said earlier about um, sanctions and being against sanctions but being in favor of it in the case of israel we're not calling for you know sanctions on um medicine to israeli babies you know we're not calling for food supplies to be you know stopped to israel we're calling for governments to sanction the israeli arms industry you know and and that is what bdf and and, and things like that you know strategic ethical um anti-colonial uh, bds you know it, it's a it's a, an ethical version of sanctions it's not a state sanctions it's popular sanctions we're calling for our governments to end those uh, end these their complicity with israeli uh, colonial apartheid and that, that's, that's how it's different you know, that's how chomsky always got out of supporting bds he would say i don't support sanctions yeah, yeah it's, 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 it's a silly technical point and another point since i think this uh, question came from somebody in the uk uh you know where's where's the support for julian assange you know how come there are not hundreds of thousands of people out there every day demanding his release so if we don't stand up when this is happening to other people then it's going to keep to 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 continue to happen but julian assange is probably another great excellent example of, of what happens what happens when when good people stay silent and and we allow we allow the government to to take over and, and treat you know somebody who's who's a who's a who's a, a comrade the way julian is being treated on that note we also have to um you know out organizations like the adl the anti-defamation league which is still you know authority you know government authorities and organizations go to them thinking that you know their assessment of how many anti-semitic incidents there are you know is legitimate when literally if anya or i go to a college campus or miko and give a speech about bds they mark that down as an anti-semitic incident in southern california or whatever yeah and and really going back to like the black panthers they were a spy agency working for government and we need to get these stories out there and this history out there and you know there are other organizations anti 
um, racist organizations doing wonderful work and they, the ADL has to be outed and taken off. Yeah. And these other organizations need to become, you know, the authorities who we look to in time when we need information about, you know, racist activities in America. Yeah. All right. Good question. Go ahead, Jamil. Let's go, keep going. Okay. I have a good follow-up question for what was just discussed, actually. Um, how do, uh, this one is from Nancy. So how do progressives unite to better inform and educate people about how imperialism is against our interests and must be crushed. How do we move people forward? Our organization, so this is Nancy talking about her, her org, uh, was attacked by Zionists as far back as the 70s when Zionists went into the African-American community in North Philadelphia and snatched down our posters exposing South Africa's ties with Israel. Wow. Go ahead, anybody, just go ahead and jump in, guys. I'm always really interested to talk about how U.S. imperialism is bad for all of us. So thank you for this question. As I said earlier, while we have to recognize the unique special relationship with Israel and unique, Israel's unique character, the fact it's an apartheid state, we also have to see it as part of a greater puzzle, uh, as part of a tool and a, a legacy of European and U.S colonialism and empire. And if we view it as, a, as an issue that doesn't just exist out on its own, but actually fits into a wider picture, then we don't get stuck in these very damaging debates such as Syria. We understand how Syria fits into a wider narrative about Israel and about Palestine. But when it comes to convincing people why U.S. imperialism is bad for all of us, I always like to tell people here in the United States that they might be surprised that when I go to places such as Venezuela, for example, one of the primary targets of U.S. empire and financial restriction, economic terrorism really is what the Iranian foreign minister always says to characterize U.S. sanctions. It is a targeted weapon against health systems, against food supplies, all of those things which Asa mentioned. But People in those countries understand that in some ways, and I believe this, the first victims of U.S. empire are the U.S. population, is the, is the U.S. population, the people here who are striving and fighting for all of these great shiny promises made by someone such as Senator Bernie Sanders, healthcare, education, all of these benefits and just basic rights, human rights that other developed countries, people in other developed countries have access to, and which for some reason we don't get here in the United States, the richest country to ever exist in the history of the world. Well, why is that? It's because the United States is sending billions of dollars to Israel, and it has been for years, because it's spending exponential amounts of money on its ever-growing military budget. The only thing Congress can seem to get together and pass every year is the, is the budget, which is largely uh, earmarked for military spending. It's because the United States government is only interested and invest in investing in a, a growing occupation of the world with its military and with its allies that the public here is deprived of basic human rights, healthcare, the right to even 
there are so many things we could do with the, with the money and the wealth in this country, but because our government only serves a small elite, an elite which come from industry and capitalist interests, those that that's essentially the definition of imperialism is when the government is only acting on the interests of that small elite and then using the wealth of the country to go and occupy the rest of the world in a quest for a never ending a never ending quest for resources and and uh, and wealth and so sanders didn't actually do a great job i think of making that connection between foreign policy and domestic policy. You can talk about healthcare all you want, but unless you're willing to have the conversation about where our money is going and why and how we confront that, we're not going to get those social programs that we all need here. And so that's why I see US imperialism is damaging to all of us. I think the public here is truly the first victim of that empire. Anybody else want to jump in or should we move on? All right, Jamil, go ahead. Okay. This next one is from Nadia. Uh, the question is, could the Israel's Ministry of Strategic Affairs be prosecuted in the United States for interference in American politics? So this is a question about legality, but I, I chose it because it's also an interesting question about perhaps how slippery these types of organizations can be in terms of like how they present themselves and influence things. Um, I, that's, that's actually a really good question. It's not something I've thought of very much before. Um, I'm not a lawyer, um, but I will say, I think that's a good idea. I mean, <laughs> I, it, the thing is it could uh, obviously, I mean, I, I'd like to hear from our comrades at Palestine legal about that. Um, I'm sure they'd have thoughts about it. Um, especially with Gilad Erdogan coming to the US, it, it could be a good opportunity. Um, I think that even, even if it wasn't successful, you could pretend as such a case, you know, if it was properly done, could potentially, you could potentially learn a lot about how Israel operates, you know, with, with discovery and so forth, documents and new evidence could be brought to light. And I think certainly from a journalist's point of view, I'd love to see what came out of such a case. I'm not a lawyer either, and, and and so I'm not sure how you could go after the an Israeli ministry in U.S. courts. But one question I do have, which I mentioned earlier, would be if if journalists from a foreign media outlet are supposed to be registered as foreign agents or were forced to register to, as foreign agents, I don't see why there shouldn't be a case made that people working for APAC should have to register as foreign agents in the United States. And we should also know there should be a, an investigation into who is truly uh, co collaborating with, with these, these organizations which work out of the is, uh, Israeli Strategic Affairs Ministry, which we spoke earlier, that are actually running surveillance and propaganda campaigns against U.S. citizens on U.S. soil and reporting back to a foreign ministry. Those people should probably be pointed out and and made to register as as agents of a foreign government. Yeah, I'm also not a lawyer, but I'm pretty sure just looking at cases that have been brought against um, individuals representing other countries that it's legally probably possible. Um, you know, the idea is when would we have somebody in government who um, would be willing to do it? I mean, Anya and Miko, you guys live in Washington D.C. You know that. You know, it's not a secret that actually when Israeli officials come to D.C., they, people know they're being spied upon. Like, you know, it's not a secret. So um, 
I think that I think that there's you know because they act with impunity because they act fearlessly you know nobody will ever I mean you know back to the USS Liberty like the US never went after Israelis for you know for their crimes that the American government I think Rachel Corey Rachel Corey is another great example um, that you know I think they just feel like you know that nobody would have the chutzpah to do it. Yes, but at the same time, they went after uh, AMP, they went after CARE, they went after Holland Foundation, they went after all these Muslim organizations because uh, somebody claimed that there was an attack by Palestinians against some Jewish settler and that they are somehow responsible. So that did go to, they actually went to court and, you know, had to spend a lot of time, a lot of money, a lot of effort and so forth. And I think in one case, there was a, actually a judgment was given. So right, I mean, right now the U.S. campaign for Palestinian rights has been sued. So you know, so yeah, so the legal, the legal, the legal argument—that's uh, the answer. It does, it can happen, but you have to be politically aligned uh, as uh, and not in favor with the powers that be. You should be out of favor with the government, and then, like, if you're a Muslim, a Palestinian, Arab, then of course there's no problem. Uh, the courts will take it. That's the reality here. So I suppose theoretically it could happen when there is the kind of political shift that will allow it to happen. Go ahead, Jamil. So, okay, we're coming up on the two hour mark. Um, so we want to do one more? We want to be respectful. Let's do one last one. Yeah, then we'll finish. Okay, cool. We'll end on uh, Jonathan's question then. So the question is, speaking of the UK, should we be representing this racket as an attack on the left slash socialism or an attack on the whole country, the integrity of its people and institutions and national uh, sovereign sovereignty? In this regard, I can't help note that the most effective political campaign we have seen in recent years is the one for Brexit, which wrongheadedly and divisively presents the EU as undermining British sovereignty. Um, I, I think that, uh, um, I think historically and in recent history, there's no doubt that, um, Zionism as a movement has, um, absolutely presented itself as, I mean, it presents itself as an anti-left-wing movement, you know, I mean, there, from the beginning, I mean, I, there, in uh, in the 19 going right back to Herzl in the 19th century before the British overtook Palestine during the First World War occupied Palestine and began to hand it over to the Zionist movement um, Theodor Herzl wanted to see um, a, a, like a, like other Zionists wanted to see a European power um, essentially a European colonial power give them uh, influence and to, to help them to build a Jewish state in Palestine against the wishes of the indigenous people. Um, and there is, he had discussion in um, the late 19th century with um, the German Kaiser at the time, um, trying to persuade him to use his influence with the, um, with uh, the Turks, with the, uh, the Ottoman Empire at the time, which of course, um, had control of Palestine at the time. It was within the Ottoman Empire, and Herzl was attempting to use um, his. Uh, 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 he was trying to persuade the Kaiser to, you know, persuade the Sultan on his behalf uh, and on behalf of the Zionist movement. And what they were offering 
what to as part of their argument to persuade the German Kaiser at the time to do this was that Zionism was a movement that would um, keep down uh, would keep down the left would keep down the German Jewish left you know because the 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 the, um, the, the Jewish left at the time in Germany was of course uh, and in Eastern Europe was split between uh, and and later on more between Bundists and Zionists you know the left and and Zionism was presenting itself as an anti-socialist and an anti-left-wing movement that would be useful to um, European uh, empires. So, I mean, you know, this, no matter what emphasis you want to put on it, on, on, on it strategically and in terms of campaigns and whether you want to make it um, this campaign or that campaign, I think that that's just an objective reality. And we see that down through the decades and that is very much what happened in recent years in the Labour Party, I think. Yeah, but I think, you know, Asa, I think, I think in regards to this particular question, really the intervention and the level of intervention that we saw in the last, you know, in the last few years in the UK is really, a, is really uh, an affront to British democracy. I mean, it was, it was, it was a clear intervention that went all the way you know, to the Israeli Prime Minister's office with his comments about Jeremy Corbyn. So while they yeah, were... I agree with that. No, absolutely, I agree with that. It, it was it was absolutely undermining the British democratic process. You know, I mean, it. I, I'm always a bit cautious about those kind of narratives because it does sort of assume that you know the British. I think there's a danger that that argument can. I know this isn't how you mean it, but. It, it can come across as you know there's nothing wrong with british the british democratic process anyway and the only problem is these kind of lobbies subverting them um which you know is is not true there's a lot of problems with british democracy in and of itself but yeah absolutely i do definitely agree that um the israel lobby has absolutely undermined um the british democratic process and and the u.s democratic process as well um Esty mentioned before the adl and she alluded to the fact that the ADL ran a massive spy operation on behalf of the state of Israel. You know, this is a really massive, it's, it's a huge story that we don't, I mean, we know it amongst ourselves, but perhaps we don't remind people of it enough. Uh, on behalf of Israel, you know, an ostensible civil rights group, supposedly the ADL, to supposedly to combat um, anti-Jewish racism, in fact, ran a spying operation on American citizens on behalf of, Israel and apartheid South Africa, as it was at the time, the, you know, the apartheid regime in South Africa. Um, so, yeah, I mean, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, but and you're, and, you're, and you're also right. I mean, there are flaws, the flaws in the system, in the political system in both countries, uh, certainly allows for this kind of thing to happen. Because, I mean, yeah. there, are, there are mutual benefits. I mean, both sides benefit from this, of course. Absolutely. Please? Yeah, I mean, well, yeah. At least in the UK, you were actually able to have a debate within the Labour Party at the high levels and pass these initiatives and, 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 and declarations in support of Palestine on an actual party level. I'm envious of that personally here in the United States. Yeah, I mean, I, I could have a Labour Party conference with all those Palestinian flags. That, that alone is so remarkable compared to. Yeah, but also here. at the same time, even at the Democratic Party conference some years ago, you know, they the grassroots were you know against 
uh, things about you know uh, uh, recognizing the Jerusalem as the capital of Israel and so on and so forth. So you know the grassroots is there. You know I think the difference in 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 the UK. Um, is that the Labour Party is an actual political party with members, you know, rather than... Yes. And, and to be honest, that has its downsides too, because it... What it so meant, what they did to you. <laughs> yeah, because it, it meant that people could be uh, expelled and suspended and disciplined and all this kind of stuff where you, they can't really do that because you could just register as a Democrat, right? Yeah, and I think it's fair to say that they went after Bernie not because he was Jewish, but because, uh, you know, of his you know, leanings towards, you know, um, uh, socialist, you know, movements and that he wanted to socialize things that Anya was saying should be socialized, our education system and our, you know, our, uh, our medical our healthcare system and all these things that only work. Other countries, every other industrialized country has, you know, socialized medicine, not because, you know, that it's just, you know, they fancy it. It's because it's the only economic model that works. I mean, yes, it's the right thing to do. All people when they're sick, no matter what, should be able to get medical care. But it also is the only system that works. And I think that the things, you know, Bernie was talking about, they were more threatened by those leftists and socialist leanings than, you know, the fact that he was Jewish. Although I'm sure there definitely were people that weren't happy about that. There, you know, I was at a rally where a Nazi flag was unfurled. Mm. Yeah, well, we're kind of out of time. Um, so I'd like to thank all of you for uh, really a fantastic uh, debate, for, uh, conversation, I should say, uh, for your invaluable input, your invaluable work on a day-to-day -day basis. Uh, I still think we should take Anya's sentence of, com of walking with confidence of a winning movement and make a t-shirt. Yeah. Um, and that, um, you know, we should act and, and, and remain in solidarity with each other and with other groups who are fighting for similar causes because that is uh, where our strength lies. I also agree from what I see that on the grassroots level, uh, there's certainly, there is certainly is a lot of progress and even the uh, you know the advent of of, of Gilad Erdan, who uh, otherwise is a racist buffoon, but obviously has had some successes. Um, we can uh, safely, I think, continue because we are fighting for the right causes, and um, hopefully, we'll see some progress uh, in uh, sooner rather than later. Uh, Jamil, you want to maybe finish up with some some housekeeping, and then we will let our wonderful panel get on with their day. Yeah, just real quick, uh, you know, huge thank you to everybody for attending from Corbin to Sanders, uh, our Zionist orgs trying to targeting, targeting progressive politicians. So there's going to be a follow-up email going out tomorrow or the day after with all of the panelists' Twitter handles and some of the uh, articles and reporting that was cited today. So we encourage you to follow everyone on the panel, acquaint yourself with their orgs. You got Gray Zone, Electronic Intifada, and JVP Action. Uh, if you haven't already, uh, we also encourage you to keep up with Miko's social media because we're going to be doing more of these online events. So, you know, hopefully this is the, the second of many. And lastly, I'm, we're going to be posting the recordings of this webinar. Um, so just give us a little bit of time to get those posted. Keep an eye out. 
And the last thing I want to plug is the Miko Pellet podcast, uh, which Miko and I do together. Um, it's a vehicle for us to dive into some of the more underreported issues in Palestine. And it's usually interview based and, and we're usually hi highlighting these human rights defenders who are battling all kinds of injustice on the ground. So you can subscribe to that using Apple, Spotify, wherever you get your podcast. But yeah, uh, huge thanks again to our amazing panel for their contributions and insights. And yeah, that's it. Stay safe, everyone. Thank you.